did Jesus really rise? Did Jesus really rise? There's uh, a lot of people that say that Christians believe in nothing but fairy tales. And so we want to look at that today and look at some of the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. With that, let's open up with the word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we thank you, Lord, for a, a beautiful day as we come together in your name to glorify you and to celebrate the day that you rose from the dead. Lord, I pray that each and every person here would recognize that there's much more to life than just this life. That if all there is is just 60 or 70 years here on this planet, and then we cease to exist, then life is without meaning. But if there is a God, and if this God has provided salvation for us, and there is life after death, then life can have meaning. And so I pray that each and every one of us would recognize today that when we look for meaning in life, we would not look into a bottle, we would not look into the, the sins of this world, but instead we would look into an empty tomb and see that because Jesus Christ's body is no longer there, because He has risen, we can have hope and we can face life knowing that someday our Savior will return for us to bring us home. Lord, I just pray that each one of us here would recognize the true significance of Easter and would recognize what actually occurred 2,000 years ago when the woman found the tomb empty. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Did Jesus really rise? Before, before we start discussing that, if you'd open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, the early church's greatest evangelist and theologian, he wrote a letter to the uh, believers in Corinth. And uh, Corinth was in Greece... And the people there, they had a problem with the resurrection, with a bodily resurrection from the dead, uh, mainly because of a hangover from uh, Platonic philosophy, the philosophy of Plato. And so they had problems with the resurrection. Plato saw no sense. He saw the spirit, the realm of the spirit, as so much higher than the realm of the flesh that he saw no use for a resurrection of the body and, and uh, continuation continuing life in the body. And so Paul had to defend the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But take a look. I want us to see the importance of the resurrection. This isn't just a, an insignificant question. The Christian faith stands or falls on whether or not that tomb was empty. The Christian faith stands or falls on whether or not Jesus Christ actually conquered death by raising himself from the dead 2,000 years ago. Look at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. If Jesus Christ did not raise himself from the dead, then we are wasting our time today. If Jesus Christ did not raise himself from the dead, 
and the whole Christian church is wasting its time. If Jesus Christ couldn't conquer death for himself, how in the world is he going to conquer death for us? Verse 17, Paul says basically the same thing. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. What's the sense of trusting in a dead Savior? That's why I, could, I can't be a Buddhist. Because he died and his body rotted in the tomb. And I can't be a Muslim because Muhammad's body rotted in the tomb. But when you come to Christianity, Christianity claims that his body is not in that tomb. That the tomb is empty. Because after they crucified him on the third day, he rose from the dead. But Paul is very clear. There's a lot of people who try to call themselves Christians and they deny that Jesus rose from the dead. There is no Christianity without a resurrection. There is no Savior who is not a risen Savior. If Jesus didn't rise, then Christianity is false and it's a waste of time. In fact, look a little bit further. Verses 20 to 22, Paul says this, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits is when you would take your first crop and you would take it and you would donate it to the uh, church. And that was a way of saying that everything, everything that you owned, all the produce of your land, belonged to the Lord. Christ being risen from the dead as the first fruits is a promise that there's going to be more to come. That He is a guarantee that all those who trust in Him will someday be raised from the dead as well. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that was Adam, Adam sinned, then he died, and all men died because of that. We inherit his sin nature. For since by a man came death, by a man, Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now let me say something about verse 22. It's not saying that everybody's going to heaven. It's just saying everybody in Christ is going to heaven. You see, we're all born in Adam's family because we're all, we all inherit his nature. We can all be traced back to Adam and Eve. And because of that, we all die. But to be in the family of Christ, one must trust in Him alone for salvation. And if we trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, we are in His family, and then all shall be made alive, all shall be raised as He was raised. See, Paul's argument is like this. If Jesus didn't rise, we're wasting our, our time. But if He was raised from the dead, His resurrection guarantees that we someday will be risen from the dead as well. But then Paul says in verse 32, the second half of verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised... So in other words, if Jesus really wasn't risen from the dead, then, the, then we won't be raised. And if we will not be raised, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see, what Paul is saying is, if Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead... There's no guarantee that we'll be risen from the dead. And if we're not going to be risen from the dead to be judged, then it doesn't matter what we do. 
You know, when I debated a philosophy professor on God's existence at Lower Columbia College, part of my argument was that if God does not exist, and if there's no life after death, and if all you live is 60 or 70 years, and then you die, and then you cease to exist, that a million years from now it would make no difference whether you were a Mother Teresa who helped hurting people or an Adolf Hitler who butchered innocent human beings. A million years from now, it would make no difference whatsoever. Everybody you influenced would be long gone. But if there is a God, it makes all the difference in the world. And of course, if you get some new neighbors moving next door, you're going to hope it's a Mother Teresa and not, or not an Adolf Hitler. Uh, but the fact remains, there's no reason to live a godly life, to be a good neighbor, to do good things, to love people, unless there is life after death, and if the things that we do have eternal significance rather than just momentary uh, significance. And so what we want to look at today is the question, did Jesus really rise? Because it makes all the difference, not just in this world, but it makes all the difference that that can be made. There's only four possibilities. We have in the Scriptures, in the New Testament today, we have several different accounts. Eyewitness accounts, such as from Matthew and from John, that they had seen Jesus alive after He had risen from the dead. The Apostle Paul claims to have seen Jesus alive after He rose from the dead. Peter, in one of his letters, claims to have seen Jesus risen uh, alive after he had risen from the dead. Uh, you've got Luke who talked to eyewitnesses and recorded what they said in his gospel. Mark got his gospel from Peter and records that eyewitness testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. James, eyewitness testimony. So we've got these. They're in existence. Everybody admits they're in existence. And so there's only four possibilities about these resurrection accounts. One possibility is that they're just legends. That it's just a bunch... There was a, you know, Jesus died and that was the end of it. But then little rumors started coming around that somebody saw Him from, risen from the dead, but there was no truth to it. And that a couple hundred, about a hundred years later, maybe two hundred years later, legends of a resurrection began to develop. So that's one possibility. A second possibility is that the apostles were just lying wasn't a legend, they were just lying through their teeth. Third possibility is that they, they were sincere, they weren't lying, but they were deceived. They thought they saw Jesus risen from the dead, but they were mistaken, they were deceived. And then the fourth possibility is that the apostles told the truth, and that Jesus Christ did in fact rise from the dead. So we need to look at these different possibilities and find out. By the way, the interesting thing about 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of liberal scholars who try to say, oh, this book wasn't written until 70 or 80 A.D., and this book wasn't written until later, and they try to explain away the evidence. But there's been so much investigation by critical scholars of the book of 1 Corinthians that it is universally accepted, even by non-believing New Testament scholars, as well as believing New Testament scholars, 
it is widely accepted, in fact, it's just about universally accepted, that the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul between 52 and 54 A.D. Anytime you get a guy who thinks he's a historical scholar and he denies that, all that shows is he has not done his homework. This is accepted across the boards. So that when you read things like 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, this is universally accepted by believers and non-believers among the scholarly community that Paul is the one who wrote these things. Now, 52 to 54 A.D. is significant because it's only 20 years after the resurrection supposedly occurred. So I want us to take a look at what Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. And I'm going to base my case primarily upon this. And that reads, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, by the way, that, that little sentence there, Paul uses that a lot in his writings. And whenever he does... What he's telling the people is, I'm going to give to you a creed, either it was either used as a hymn or a creed in the early churches. And Paul's saying, I was given this when I went and visited the church in Jerusalem, and I'm going to share it with you. So it's an ancient creed that even predates the writing of 1 Corinthians. Most scholars put this creed as being put into finalized form around 35 to 37 A.D., so five to seven years after the resurrection supposedly occurred. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So this ancient creed, which some scholars date back as far as 35 to 37 A.D., lists the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Again, it is agreed that Paul was the one who was stating these things. First point I want to make, we have four possibilities. The resurrection accounts were not legends. The resurrection accounts were not legends. Legends take centuries to form. The reason for this is, is real obvious. It's because the eyewitnesses have to be long dead. Supposing, just supposing, uh, let's, say, let's say there's a guy, I, I didn't read the obituaries in the last few days, but let's say there's a guy in Bremerton, and he lived a normal life and stuff, and he died about three or four days ago. If Neil and I get together and want to start a legend of his resurrection, it's not going to develop real quick. Every time somebody says, yeah, this guy rose from the dead and he appeared to all these people, the eyewitnesses are going to come forth and say, no, no, no. 
I knew the guy. The guy didn't perform any miracles. He was a regular guy, a hard-working man, whatever. But he died, and that was it. In order for legends to begin to pick up steam, the eyewitnesses have to be dead. Usually, the students of the eyewitnesses have to be dead, and often their students as well. So it takes about, have to be about 150 to 200 A.D., before legends about a resurrection could even get started. I mean, we even find some heretical legends started by heretical groups uh, right around 100 A.D., right after John died. The Gnostics were a heretical group trying to start all kinds of heresies. But Polycarp, who was a pupil of the Apostle John, he put them down. Ignatius did as well. And other pupils of the Apostle John put these heresies down. And so it took longer before they could get started. So legends take centuries to form long after the eyewitnesses are dead. But there is so much historical data that we can see, like uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, that in less than 15 years, 15 to 20 years after the supposed resurrection, it was already widely... Uh, a widely taught doctrine that Jesus rose from the dead. It was not legend. Um, this, is, this book is the Apostolic Fathers. I'm not going to read quotes from it, but the Apostolic Fathers, they were basically the pupils of the apostles. Okay? They wrote between 95 A.D., and that's about five years before the Apostle John died, they wrote between 95 A.D. and about 150 A.D. Okay? And John, the last apostle, lived to about 100 A.D. Um, I'll just throw out a little bit about some of the things they said. Clement to Rome. He wrote a letter to the Corinthians, the same church that Paul wrote, uh, in 95 A.D. Clement to Rome, he had risen to a position. He was a leader in the church, one of the bishops. And in 95 A.D., he stated that Jesus Christ had been risen from the dead. Uh, you have Ignatius writing between 110 and 115 A.D. He wrote and stated over and over again that Jesus Christ had been risen from the dead. Now, Polycarp wasn't writing until about 156 A.D., but the important thing about Polycarp was, as a young man, he was John the Apostle's personal disciple. Just as Plato had sat at the feet of Socrates, Polycarp had sat at the feet of the Apostle John. He knew the Apostle John, he knew his teachings, and he stated over and over again that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Uh, there's also another gentleman, another one of the apostolic fathers named Papias, lived between 60 and 140 A.D. He gives us a lot of real good information. He knew the Apostle John personally. He told us that John wrote his gospel. He told us that the, the author of the Gospel of Mark knew Peter personally. And that the Gospel of Mark was actually Peter's gospel, that Mark wrote it from what Peter told him. Uh, he also stated that Matthew originally wrote his gospel in Hebrew for the Jews, but then when the gospel was taken to the Gentiles, he translated it into Greek for them as well. And so we've got overwhelming evidence that the New Testament 
that we have the teaching, the early teaching, the original teaching of the first century church at about from 30 to 70 A.D. was in fact the same thing that we have in our New Testament today. In other words, there is no question about it. Uh, the New Testament accounts, the resurrection accounts, were not legends. I'm going to read to you a quote from Josephus. Josephus was not a Christian. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He was born in 37 A.D. He died in 97 A.D. He was a Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader. But the Romans hired him to write a history of the Jews for them. And so Josephus began to research the history of the Jews. And he gives a real interesting paragraph on Jesus. Now, by the way, there's other secular writers as well. Uh, I'll just throw out a few names. Dallas in 52 A.D., just 20 years after the crucifixion, in his writings, he tried to explain away the darkness at the crucifixion. Why would it get pitch black in the middle of the afternoon? So Thallus tried to explain it away. 20, 20 years later, non-believers were still trying to explain away the, mir the mir miraculous things that occurred during the life of Jesus. Uh, Cornelius Tacitus wrote in 115 A.D. Suetonius, a Roman historian, uh, wrote between 117 and 138 A.D. Pliny the Younger and Emperor Trajan in 112 A.D. talking about the persecution of Christians and the certain Christian teachings. Emperor Hadrian, 117 to 138 A.D. Even the Jewish Talmud, who uh, was written by the religious leaders who were the enemies of Christ, even they openly admitted that there was a supernatural aspect to Christ's life that they could not figure out. Now, they referred to Jesus as a sorcerer because obviously they did not accept him as their Messiah and their Savior. But the fact is, even his enemies had to admit there was something miraculous, something supernatural about this Jewish carpenter from Galilee. Uh, but I want to read to you just a little bit on what Josephus stated. In his history, he stated this, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the, condemned him to the cross... Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. Now Josephus was the kind of guy, he would talk to eyewitnesses. He lived 37 to 97 A.D., and what they told him he would write. He wouldn't personally commit himself to it, but he would write what the eyewitnesses said. As a Pharisee, he would go to Jerusalem a few times a year. He may have even lived there, I'm not sure. But he could talk to the eyewitnesses, and when he talked to the eyewitnesses, that was the report that he gave. So the idea that the resurrection is a legend that came hundreds of years later is not the case. The clear uh, teaching of history 
is that the resurrection accounts were not legends. Therefore, if you don't want to believe that, the resur that Jesus really rose, you can't blame it on generations that came after the apostles. You are going to have to call either the apostles liars, or you're going to have to assume that they were not liars, but they were deceived. But that's where it is. Uh, even liberal scholars admit, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, that was the apostle Paul who wrote that. And he met Peter. And he met James. And they openly admitted that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Uh, and he himself had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And he told the Corinthian believers, if you don't believe me, go talk to one of these 500 people. Most of them are still alive. And they claim that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. The resurrection accounts were not legends. Maybe the apostles were liars. What about that possibility? There's not many people, by the way, who hold to this view any, any more. It was at one time popular, uh, but then uh, a lot of it, once it got looked into a little further, it uh, fell from popularity real, rather quickly. Uh, the apostles were not lying. Some people try to, they propose the view that the apostles stole the body of Jesus and they fabricated the resurrection accounts. They claim that they saw the resurrected Christ. The problem with this is history has shown us over and over again that these men died martyrs' death. They died horrible deaths refusing to deny that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Peter was crucified upside down. His brother Andrew was crucified. Paul was beheaded. Uh, John was the only of the original apostles that was never put to death. He was battered and beaten on several occasions, but he died of old age. He was the only, he was, he was the only apostle who was, had the courage and the love for Jesus to go to the cross with him and witness the crucifixion. All the other apostles were hiding. And uh, I don't know, maybe our Lord said, hey, if he went to the cross with me once, uh, I'll spare him from a horrible death. But all the other apostles died. It's historical, been historically confirmed. They died martyrs' deaths. Now, the problem is, men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. A person doesn't die for something. I mean, that's better than a modern-day lie detector test. You don't die for something if you know it's a lie. I mean, they're going to they're gonna crucify you, you're going to spend hours dying a horrible death, and it's all a big lie, it's all a big hoax. Men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. Therefore, the apostles sincerely believed that they had seen the resurrected Christ on several occasions. I mean, when you, when you read the r reports in uh, John chapter 20 and Luke chapter 24, they there he was standing right in the midst of the upper room, and they still didn't believe it. And he said, well, go ahead, touch, touch the wounds of my hands, the wounds of my feet, touch the wound in my side. Then he grabbed a piece of fish and ate in their midst. They couldn't believe it at first. But some claim, well, maybe they were, okay, they were sincere, but maybe they were deceived. By the way, this is where the debate is right now. Gary Habermas, Liberty University, one of my uh, 
professors over there. Uh, he debated Anthony Flew, one of the world's uh, uh, leading philosophers. He's an agnostic out of Great Britain. They flew him down to Liberty University, let Gary Habermas beat up on him, and then flew him back out. But uh, the debate, it's a book now, too, by the way, the resurrection debate, uh, Did Jesus Rise, I think is the title of the book. But modern scholarship, this is where the debate is. Nobody wants to call the apostles liars anymore. And it, the resurrection accounts are obviously not legends. The historical evidence is overwhelming. In fact, the New Testament now has gone, has gone on record as being by far the most uh, reliable and the most well-copied of all ancient manuscripts. And uh, so now what we're left with is that the apostles, everybody admits, uh, among scholars in this field, everybody admits the apostles were sincere. And so the big debate is whether they were deceived or whether they were telling the truth. Uh, one liberal scholar proposed the swoon theory. Look at John chapter 19. He proposed the uh, swoon theory. It comes back about every 20 years, and then medical doctors remind us that it doesn't hold any water, and it goes back in the closet again. Um, the swoon theory was that Jesus was on the cross. You know, it admits the apostles were sincere, but Jesus is on the cross, and he faints. He passes out, but he doesn't die. And so when they take him off the cross, they think he's dead. They put him in a tomb, and somehow he revives, and he comes out of the comes out of the tomb, and then goes and reports to the apostles and tells them he's alive. And the apostles say, "This is great. He's conquered death. Let's let's worship him as God, trust in him as our Savior." Yeah, this is great. I believe he's conquered death, and he's convinced me so much. I'm willing to be thrown to the lions now. I'm willing to die a horrible death. Uh, medical doctors had a problem with this because of what goes on at crucifixion. Even if he did survive the cross, he would have a real hard time convincing them or convincing anybody he had conquered death. Walking around with holes in his feet, holes in his hands, a pierced side. Um, the dampness in the tomb, the, 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 the Roman scourging. They would have put jagged pieces of metal and pieces of bone on the end, end, end of the whip. The whip would usually have three or four strands. So every time you got whipped, it's like being whipped three or four times. It was common to be whipped by Romans, to have bones exposed. The infections would have killed them, especially being in a damp tomb. At the very least, Jesus would have been in such serious need for medical attention and uh, would have been basically on his deathbed, had he not been dead, that he would have convinced no one that he had just conquered death. Uh, he would have just been a battered, sickly man in, in, in dire need of attention. But the fact is, he did die. Look at John chapter 19. John chapter 19. The eyewitness, the apostle John, records this in verses 31 to 34. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. 
The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. Let me explain what's going on here. The Romans were experts in killing people. I mean, these guys were ruling the world, and if you wanted to rule the world, you had to kill a lot of people to do it back then. Uh, nowadays, you don't have to kill people. You could just kind of uh, um, do a good sales job, and you could end up ruling the world. There's a lot of people that are manipulating others in an attempt to get the United Nations and a one-world government to come about. Uh, but back then, if you wanted to rule the world, you had to kill people. These guys were experts on killing people, and they were experts on torture. They knew how to kill people quick, but they also knew how to kill people slow. And they decided, uh, with this crucifixion, exposing people to public shame, let's make it last a long time. So what they did was, well, when you're crucified, the problem is your lungs eventually, you're unable to, to get air into them. You're you become unable to breathe. You can't get another breath, and so you die a slow, horrible death. Sometimes it would take two, three, four days to kill a guy on a cross. Well, but the Romans didn't like riots from the Jews, and to keep corpses out on their Sabbath days or their Passover on their holy days was to desecrate their holy days, and then the Jews would riot and stuff. So the, the Romans would not leave crucified victims on the cross during their holy days. So what the, what the Romans would do is, the Roman soldier would then just break the legs. You just break a leg on one of the guys on the cross, and then you can't push off anymore. And if you can't push off, you can't get any air, you die within minutes. Okay, when you're in the... That's another reason why Jesus couldn't have been unconscious on the cross hanging down. If you're in the down position, you're dead. You're either dead or you're 30 seconds from death. But it comes quickly at that point. Um, they went to Jesus. He was already dead. And the Roman soldier is an expert in death. He's seen dead guys before. That's his job. And uh, so he figured, I'm not, no sense in breaking his leg, which, by the way, fulfilled the prophecy of the Passover lamb. Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was celebrated in Exodus chapter 12 under Moses and all, where they slaughtered a Passover lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and then the angel of death, when he would kill every firstborn Egyptian child, would pass over every house that had applied the blood of the lamb. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is our Passover lamb. If you trust in him for salvation, then his shed because of his shed blood on the cross of Calvary, you'll be passed over for the judgment uh, that you deserve. But one of the qualifications of the Passover lamb, it could have no broken bones. And uh, so the, the soldier goes up to Christ. He's already dead. So he figures, well, he's already dead. I don't need to break his leg. But he's a good soldier, very conscientious, cares about his job. And he figures, just in case he's not dead, I'm going to do something that will kill him if he's not dead. And so the piercing aside, he knew how to kill a guy. He knew, well, you know, if you stick a guy with a spear in this part of the body, it hurts a real lot, but it don't kill him. You stick a spear somewhere else, it kills him, but it kills him slow. But if you want to kill him fast, this is where you stick him. And so he pierced Christ's side with a lethal blow that would kill him. But the interesting thing is John was watching this, and he said, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. He thought it was kind of strange, so he recorded it. Blood and water. 
He even implies maybe he thought it might have been a miracle or something, because he never saw that before. Well, what does that mean, blood and water? Make a long story short, I've read several different medical doctors on this particular phenomenon, and what it basically is, the only time a body that gets punctured in the area of the heart, the only time that it will come out with a clear fluid as well as blood is if that body is a corpse. In other words, modern medical science has shown that the phenomenon of blood and water flowing from the side of a body that's just been pierced, that is, sign that the that is a sign of med medical evidence that the body is a corpse. The person has already died. And so every time the swoon theory pops back into the picture, all the other problems with it are pushed aside and they come right back to this passage. There's no way John could have known that and said, I'll lie, I'll say blood and water came out, even though it really didn't, because he wouldn't have known back then that blood and water confirms death, that death has already occurred. So the swoon theory is no longer held uh, by any scholars today. The wrong tomb theory. Some people say, well, maybe they just all went to the wrong tomb. Two problems with that. Uh, number one, it doesn't explain the resurrection of appearances of Christ. If, if they went to the wrong tomb, all you'd have is an empty tomb. You wouldn't have 500 people saying, we saw him risen from the dead. He appeared to us alive. You wouldn't have the Apostle Paul saying he saw him. Or the Apostle John talking about him in the upper room with the Apostles and with Doubting Thomas. Others uh, have... Uh, oh, and by the way, too, if the Apostles went to the wrong body, the Jewish authorities, who had every motive to destroy Christianity, to crush it in its embryo form, they had the means and the uh, motive to basically... Uh, search every tomb outside of Jerusalem until they did find the right tomb, produce the rotting corpse of Christ, and then they could crush Christianity in its embryo form. They did not because the tomb uh, was in fact empty. So the wrong tomb theory falls. Another possibility how the apostles could have been deceived, uh, the hallucination theory. People have known to uh, hallucinate, especially uh, people uh, taking... Uh, trips on certain kinds of hallucinogenic drugs. Uh, the problem with this view, though, this theory is the fact that a hallucination occurs in the mind of someone. No two people have the same hallucination because it occurs in the person's mind. So you've got a problem when you've got 12 apostles seeing, having the same hallucination. It just would not occur. But then when you have 500 people all at once seeing the risen Christ, the problem is only compounded even more. And so the hallucination theory does not hold much more. By the way, the liberal scholars, the non-believing scholars themselves, have proven their own theories false. Uh, the resurrection accounts, by the way, by believers and non-believers alike, it was regarded for the most part as history by scholars until the... Uh, uh, 18th century, then Benedict Spinoza came on the scene and started to doubt it and started to make complaints about it and, and all. But in the last century, where most of these naturalistic theories were proposed, 
natural explanations. They try to take out all the supernatural elements of the Bible. The liberal scholars themselves disprove their own views. You know, you'd have one guy would say, hey, wait, maybe he didn't die. And then the other leading scholars would stand up and say, no, here's the evidence that he died. So he definitely died. Maybe they saw hallucinations. And then another scholar would stand up and say, no, here's the evidence against that. Maybe it was this other thing. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. And it just went on and on. But they basically refuted their own views. Now, where does that leave us? If the resurrection accounts were not legends, then they came from the apostles. But if the apostles were not lying because they were sincere enough to die for these claims and die horrible deaths at that, if they weren't lying and there's absolutely no evidence that they were deceived whatsoever, they had every reason to confirm that they actually did see the risen Christ. I mean, let me... Let, if you're going to buy a car, you want to check it out. Before you're going to spend five to $10,000 on something, you want to check it out and make sure it's going to work. But if you're going to be thrown to the lions, man, I'd hate to get thrown to the lions and then find out later I was wrong. Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be. You're going to check it out. When Jesus Christ appeared to them, they checked it out. They were not deceived. So if the resurrection accounts weren't legends, if the apostles weren't lying, if they weren't deceived, that leaves us with only one possibility. The apostles were telling the truth. Dr. Gary Habermas, my old professor from Liberty University, his dissertation was about 600 pages long. He's got a Ph.D. in philosophy and history from uh, uh, University of Detroit. When he had to defend his dissertation, it was in front of... Uh, uh, a whole committee of scholars, he got real nervous because he found out one of the, scho one of the scholars was, a, was Jewish by faith. Was not a Christian, was Jewish. Now, the other scholars were non-believers, but, you know, he wasn't sure what they, what they believed about the resurrection. But a Jewish scholar, he figured, well, this guy definitely denies the resurrection. And it turned out, even after the debate, the, the Jewish scholars, he, he told the Jewish scholar, you know, I expected more arguments coming from you, and I didn't get hardly any. A Jewish scholar said, oh, I, I looked into this issue myself years ago. And, uh, yeah, it's, the evidence is real strong. I mean, only an unbiased man would deny, after looking at the evidence, would deny that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And it baffled Dr. Habermas, and he says, well, you're Jewish. You're, you're not a Christian. He, the, this gentleman had accepted Jesus as just a prophet, not as his Messiah, not as God in the flesh, but he admitted that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, the problem with that view breaks down is when you come to a passage like John 10. Look at John chapter 10. The evidence is out. Jesus Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead. Therefore, whoever he was, God put his, stamp, put the, his own stamp of approval on Christ's teachings by raising him from the dead. What were some of the things that Jesus taught? Look at John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33. Jesus said this, I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Don't call Jesus just a good man who rose from the dead 
or just a prophet who rose from the dead. This guy walked around and claimed to be God. He's either a deceiver or he's God himself in the flesh. And I believe his resurrection proves that he is God in the flesh. Then John 14, verse 6. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one comes to the Father but through me. If Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be, God in the flesh, His resurrection proves that claim to be true. Jesus Christ claimed that salvation comes only through Him. Not through Him, plus if you want, you could choose Buddha instead, or Muhammad, or you can choose uh, Confucius. Jesus Christ said, if you want to get to the Father, it's through Me, and it's through Me alone. Whenever the Pharisees had a disagreement with him, and say, well, give us some evidence for your authority. Give us some evidence for your claims. He said, the only evidence I'll give you, destroy this body, and in three days I'll raise it up. Jesus Christ said he would prove his claims by rising from the dead, and the historical evidence shows that he did, in fact, rise from the dead. Just a couple more passages, and then we'll close. Look at Luke chapter 24. Where, where does that leave us now? The historical evidence shows that Jesus Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead. But where does that leave us? Look at Luke 24. There were some followers of Jesus that were on the road to Emmaus. And it was right after Jesus had been crucified a few days later. And they were feeling pretty down. And Jesus appeared and walked alongside of them. But they didn't recognize him. I mean, you, you don't just expect to see a guy who just died a few days ago. And their eyes, it says in verse 16, were prevented from recognizing him. But look at verses 18 to 21. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Now Jesus reveals to them a little later, Hey, I'm the guy you're talking about. I'm Jesus, I have risen. But look at that one passage there. What applies to Israel applies to the whole world. We were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Mankind, since the garden, you live and then you die. Whether you're a king or a pauper, you live your life, you die, that's it. Life seems so without meaning. It seems so meaningless. You love somebody and it's like, and they die. Then it makes you wonder, should I love anybody else? It hurts to love because of...